Hi, I'm Greg from Omaha. I'm Michael from Baltimore. Hey, I'm Dave from Portland, Oregon. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is the journalist John Ronson. He's made a career of tracking down wingnuts and extremists and people on the fringes of all sorts of societies. His latest book is called The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. It starts with a puzzle book and travels through a long investigation of psychopathy and psychiatry. Uh, John Ronson, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Hey, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. I, when I was in high school, um, interned in the mayor's office of San Francisco, and I worked in the mayor's office of neighborhood services. And if you pick up the phone and call mayor's office from the phone book, that's who you get. And if you just send a letter that says, to the mayor, San Francisco, California, that's who you get. And it was my job to respond to some of the less coherent letters that were received. We had a woman who wanted us to intervene with the CIA who were sending pigeons to her house. Oh, you get so many. I get so many. I'm being tracked by the CIA letters. <laughs> so many. It's kind of weird. I mean, I want to say to them, well, well in England, it's MI5. You know, the MI5 are in a transit van at the bottom of my drive monitoring me. Uh, can you investigate? Uh, I want to say to them, you know, uh, they don't have the staff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they, they lack the sheer manpower. Yeah. We. <laughs> We used to get a monthly newsletter uh, from a gentleman named James Bond Zero um, of the Hardware Secret Service. And it was, we could never figure out what it was supposed to be. It would come to us, this was in the late 1990s, so it would come to us looking like it had come out of Broderbund Print Shop. And it was sort of laid out like a company newsletter. And often there would be articles that would start with words and then just devolve into letters. <laughs> you know, the thing that's so interesting about this for me, I, I began to realize over time, is that when, when people's brains go wrong, they go wrong in, in sort of eerily similar ways. So there's like so many people who share the same delusion that the CIA are after them or that MI5 is after them. It's, it's, it's weird, isn't it, that people, people who never meet each other just share this, this, this delusion about themselves. The story of your book starts with you hearing about something not too far from this and deciding as uh, the chronicler of the bizarre and extreme that you are to pull on the string. Yeah. Uh, I, I was contacted by a neurologist um, who said, I, you know, I get a lot of emails and I, saying, will you tell this story? Will you, you know, will you investigate this? And I tend not to. But there was something about this particular email. She said that she was a neurologist and she got sent a mysterious package through the mail. And it was an incredibly expensive puzzle book, but with no indication as to what the puzzle was 
how to solve the puzzle, who had written it, why she'd been chosen. And what she discovered was that uh, academics all over the world uh, had been sent this book and they all kind of met on the internet to try and work out, well, why had they been chosen? Had they all been to the same conference together or something? And what did it mean? You know, what, you know, it was, it was as if these puzzles, it was as if the solution was just out of reach, but they couldn't do it. And then eventually one of them said, well, you know, maybe we're too brilliant and academic to solve this <laughs> evidently brilliant puzzle. Let's bring in somebody more brutish, like a, like a journalist. And so they called me. As a journalist, you got this piece of information, this incredibly sort of baroquely complicated puzzle book that involves um, some pages with information, some pages without, uh, some pages cut out. Uh, so it's printed in a, a beautiful and, and expensive manner. And because you're a journalist, you had a specific response to it, which is that you wanted to take this piece of information that you had and and build it into a story, into a narrative. Yeah. Uh, what I discovered was that there was a... I discovered through looking through uh, Swedish libraries. I should explain that, th that <laughs> these books, all we knew was that the book had come from Sweden, uh, from Gothenburg. And what I discovered was that there was a man listed in a Swedish library as the translator of this book being on nothingness, a man called Petter Nordland. So I had a name. So I flew to Gothenburg uh, to, to, <laughs> to, to meet this guy. You're, you're in the unique position to be able to buy an airplane ticket on the basis of that amount of information. Yeah, I, I'm lucky. I mean, this is just because they turned one of my books into a movie, The Many Stare Goats, which just kind of gave me the freedom to, to be able to follow my nose in these kind of crazy adventures. Yeah, thank God, because it kind of gave me a bit of money. So you flew to Sweden and met this guy. You did a sort of Mike Douglas 60 Minutes maneuver on him and just showed up at his door. Yeah, uh, which obviously made me feel anxious. But then again, you know, everything makes me feel quite anxious. <laughs> and I, I kind of get the impression that what you found wasn't what you, as a journalist and, and storyteller, hoped you might find, even though you did find the source of the books. Yeah, it, I was under the impression, like all the recipients of the book were, that some brilliant rational thing was at work. And what I discovered almost immediately on landing in Gothenburg, that the whole thing was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, that it was basically a guy who was likably nuts, uh, but nuts. And the reason why nobody could solve the puzzle was because it was nuts. And I, after a moment's disappointment, thought, this is unbelievable. It's great. Because what's happened here is that neurologists all around the world have become completely intrigued. They were just getting on with their kind of boring, rational lives, like a still pond. Uh, and then this happened, this kind of nuttiness happened, which was like a rock thrown in the pond. And loads happened as a result of one man's nuttiness to the extent that I flew all the way to Gothenburg to try and solve the mystery. And that gave me this kind of epiphany, <laughs> which was, is that how society works? Is madness a more powerful engine in society than rationality? And then I started remembering 
this kind of conspiracy theory by eminent psychologists that there's a type of madness that really makes society go round, and it's psychopathy that psychopaths rule the world because their brain anomaly is is propels them and you know to to be ruthless and successful and uh, that, that it's actually the brain anomaly that that filters down and, and affects all of us so i started to think well you know can i write a book about the possibility that madness rules the world and you decided to pursue this by going first to that most natural of sources uh the british church of scientology <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I thought if I was going to write a book about the possibility that madness rules the world, I needed to look at at the possibility that psychiatry couldn't be trusted. And that's how I ended up meeting the Scientologists. The Scientologists run this entire, uh, this entire outfit called the Citizens Commission or Committee? On, a commission. Commission on Human Rights, which is they have this um, museum here in Los Angeles called Psychiatry and Industry of Death, if <laughs> I remember correctly. You remember correctly. Um, so they introduce you to a guy who they consider to be the perfect example of psychiatry gone mad. And some people may have heard your piece about this on This American Life, but tell me a little bit about uh, what it was like to meet this guy, Tony, in the criminal loony bin. Yeah, in a place called Broadmoor, which is a very, very notorious, uh, it used to be called an asylum for the criminally insane, and now it's called a high-security high mental hospital. This is the place where uh, Joker, uh, Batman's enemy, lives. Uh, yeah, oh, really? I, I, literally? No, not, not, a, not in the narrative, but <laughs> okay. this is that kind of place. Yeah, they send the serial killers and the, the sex murderers and, and, you know, Britain's most famous, the Stockwell Strangler, uh, the, the, the Moors murderers, who are really Britain's most appalling killers of the last hundred years, uh, they ended up there. Um, it's a really scary place. And they said that there was this guy called Tony... Uh, who had all he'd done was beaten somebody up, which by Broadmoor terms is yeah, very slight, uh, when he was 17. And he was awaiting trial and he decided, on the advice of his fellow inmates in, in a prison, to fake madness. They said, fake madness, you know, you're looking at five to seven years in prison, but if you fake madness, you'll get sent to some cushy hospital, nurses will bring you pizza, uh, you'll have a PlayStation, it'll be great. So he faked madness way too well and ended up at Broadmoor and took one look at the place and said, I'm not mad. <laughs> because Broadmoor is, is a soul-destroying place. The minute you go there, you know, it's just the world's most depressing place. You found this guy to be uh, quite charming and, and for the most part quite convincing. Yeah, well, it was extraordinary. So, so Brian, the Scientologist, took me to the... Um, to the wellness centre in, inside Broadmoor, which was behind, you know, a zillion fences, uh, which is where people were meeting their loved ones. It was on a Sunday and all the patients kind of came in and they were all wearing sweatpants and they were overweight and they were uh, sad-eyed and docile. Brian, actually, the Scientologist, whispered to me, they're medicated, <laughs> uh, which actually made me realise, you know, because uh, made me realise just how strongly the Scientologists felt about things like medication. You know, to Brian, that was a kind of scandal that these people were medicated. Of course, to me, I was thinking that's, you know, probably a good idea. A lot of them were real murdery before they were medicated. Right. 
And um, anyway, then Tony turned up and he looked nothing like the others. The others all looked, you know, either fat or incredibly eccentric, like looking like they thought they were Jesus. Uh, Tony turned up in a pinstripe suit, looking like somebody from The Apprentice, and uh, <laughs> walked towards me with his arm outstretched. You know, this was like the kind of, you know, outfit of a man who wanted to prove to everybody that he was really sane. And of course, you know, I'm thinking, what well, does this prove that he is sane or does it prove that he's entirely nuts? You learned when you talked to this guy's, uh, the people who were treating this guy, that as you sort of incredulously stated to them, they agreed that he had faked mental illness to get into the hospital. Yeah. Um, but what they told you was that that was typical behavior for a psychopath. Yeah, this was the thing. They they accepted after after a little while. It took him a couple of years to convince them that he really had faked madness, um, and they eventually accepted that. But once he was there, they said, "Well, you're a psychopath." And in fact, faking madness to get out of a prison centre is exactly the kind of conning and manipulative acts of a psychopath. And wearing a pinstripe suit to meet a journalist is, again, a typically grandiose and superficially charming act of a psychopath. So everything that seemed most sane about Tony was actually evidence in this, in this new theory that he was a psychopath. We've got more with John Ronson after a break. He's the author of The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio... International. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by VG Kids, printers of t shirts and other merchandise for touring bands, radio stations, websites, festivals, derby girls, record labels, national brands, and all the rabble rousers, hackers, and entrepreneurs in between. Online at vgkids.com. The Sound of Young America is a proud sponsor of Sketchfest NYC in New York City at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, June 8th through 11th. You can catch some of the best sketch comedy in the country, including past Sound of Young America guests, the whitest kids you know, folks from Marvel Comics, and the legendary Rejection Show. You can find more information about Sketchfest NYC online at sketchfestnyc.com. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Ronson. His new book about people with no capacity for empathy is called The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. This lack of empathy is something that cannot be, is very difficult to directly observe. There's ways that you can um, get evidence of it by hooking people up to an fMRI and showing them something horrifying and seeing if their brain lights up in a certain way. But it's very difficult for a psychiatrist to just say to someone, um, do you lack empathy completely and have them say, yes, of course I do. Because, among other things, they might be cunning enough to know that that would label them a psychopath. Yes. So there's this checklist, and this checklist is a a way of inferring whether someone is a psychopath. Yeah, through the nuances of their language and through cunning interviewing 
style as well. I mean, this is where kind of psychiatrists and psychologists meet journalists that you ask the right question in a slightly, you know, probably slightly sort of faux naive way to get them to reveal themselves, to reveal their lack of empathy when they don't realise that that's what you're trying to do. Uh, so it sounds kind of amateur sleuth territory, doesn't it? You see, this is the problem that people who work with psychopaths have. If you're, if you're in the grips of an OCD attack or a bipolar attack or something like that, it's obvious. You don't need to be Hercule Poirot to spot that. But you do need to be Hercule Poirot to spot a psychopath because they, they bury it. They seem utterly normal uh, when you meet them. You went to a seminar um, uh, uh, hosted by the guy who created this checklist, and you learned uh, along with you know a variety of psychologists and like law enforcement people and stuff mm-hmm. about identifying people who were like this. Yeah, how did that change you? And and specifically, you know, in, in addition to just the sheer pleasure of identifying psychopaths around you. Um, how did it change the way you looked at your job, which is in part about interviewing people and leading them into inferences that you can make and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, was, it was a shock. The, the first thing that happened, I, I went into this course as a skeptic, particularly because I've been spending quite a lot of time with Scientologists. Uh, but by the end of the course, I was... I was not only was I a convert, but I was a passionate and fundamentalist convert. Uh, it's very convincing going on the hair course, uh, mainly because an extraordinary, mind-blowing facet of human nature is that when our brains go wrong, they really do go wrong in uncannily similar ways. And so psychopaths do, if you talk to them in the in the right way, reveal themselves by using turns of phrase that are identical to each other. Uh, and that's that's very real. So, for instance, I was in, this is this isn't in the book, but subsequent to writing the book, I, I interviewed this guy, uh, and I, I said to him, "What kind of kid were you? Were you?" Uh, he said, "Oh, I was in a gang. I led a gang, and we used to beat up other kids." And my psychopath checklist brain lit up, and I said, "Oh, really? Did you? What was that like? Did you enjoy beating people up?" Because yeah, it gave me a feeling of control. So, control is a big word. And uh, I said, and looking back on it now, do you still feel good? And he said, yeah, I feel, you know, it makes me feel good to think about jumping up behind a tree and beating a guy. So so that's the kind of thing that I was learning on the course, that these people would use very, very similar turns of phrase when they were off guard. Uh, so it blew me away and I became a total fundamentalist uh, psychopath spot. And I started spotting psychopaths everywhere to the extent that I kind of went a little bit psychopathic. <laughs> I started kind of dehumanising people, uh, wedging them into psychopath boxes. And I think this is very common, by the way. And Hare would say it's common. And Hare would say it worries him that people with real power, power to get people locked up beyond their prison terms, uh, go drunk with power in the same way that I did. Uh, because the checklist is a very seductive thing. And I realised, of course, that, well, that's kind of, that's what we journalists do all the time. We try and, we, we, we like to entertain people with the madness of our interviewees in, in a slightly morally corrupt manner. So the second half of, of, of my book looks at that. There's this really scary thing about 
the diagnosis of uh, psychopathy, um, which is that it is a it is a, it, it's a condition that is permanent and unchangeable. Yeah, the consensus is that that's it. Yeah, you can't get better like like you can with anxiety disorders and bipolar disorder you you can, well actually no bipolar disorder is another one that's considered basically lifelong but but certainly um disorders like ocd uh, and schizophrenia you can recover from um but psychopathy you can't it's it's what you are and you can never change and so if you score it's kind of arbitrary if you score like 29 or 30 out of the possible 40 on the psychopath checklist that's it you're a psychopath for life and if you faked madness to get out of a prison sentence and you ended up in broadmoor you're screwed you know you're a psychopath forever the the consensus is that the only time that you're no longer considered a danger is really when you just get too old and too tired to to reoffend, and it's this—it's it, a—it's a very scary thing because, in part, um, you know, th- this is a diagnosis that suggests. Well, for one thing, it's scary because um, we are—we are forced to dehumanize someone who, uh, for their ability to dehumanize others. <laughs> Yeah. Um it it's scary because it's it's lifelong and we can't change it. It's scary because um its symptoms are exactly the symptoms of someone who doesn't have it uh and wants to convince us that they don't have it. Um it, it's scary for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that because this is a, at least right now untreatable, it leads to a punishment that we don't really have we don't really have the kind of legal and moral and philosophical means to deal with. Yeah, absolutely right. There's these places springing up all over America at the moment, these these homes for paedophiles, I suppose is what they are, where once a paedophile has done their time in prison, they think they're getting out, but in fact they're met at the door by somebody who says, no, we're going to take you to this place. There's one in California called Coalinga, uh, and they're there for the rest of their lives. That's it. Because they've scored high, quite often in absentia, uh, on the psychopath checklist. And Robert Hare said to me that the people who administer these tests, who actually send these paedophiles to these places where they'll never get out of, he says, when I'm trying to teach them how to administer the checklist, you know, they're picking their nails and they're doodling and... Uh, and these are people who are deciding who will never ever be released. It's very, yes, it's very Orwellian, and it's really happening. You dive uh, towards the end of the book into um, this desire in the past thirty-five years or so to transform psychiatry from uh, an art, uh, an art-like pseudoscience into a proper science, and this. Yeah. This psychotic checklist is um, uh, one part of that effort in that it is an attempt to create an empirical method uh, rather than a subjective method um, to diagnose this disease. And and this is something that is going on in not just in psychopathy, but in 
many many disorders everywhere across uh, across the spectrum of mental health issues that people might have and part of that is that in the late 1970s early 1980s the uh, diagnostic manual uh, the dsm was expanded dramatically to include many more uh, 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 many more conditions than it had before in part to in part because of an effort to make scientific these diagnoses. They said, well, we're going to put them in the book and we're going to put down a list of characteristics that people have. Yeah. And, and the way you describe it sounds really, really reasonable because, yeah, I kind of get into trouble when I say this. And, and I, yeah, but yeah, Freudian psychotherapy is, is flawed, right? It's, it's all about sleuthing around the unconscious and an awful lot of stuff like repressed memory syndrome and so on is, has been proven to be untrue. So, you know, Freud, Freudian psychotherapy is not great. And I understand then why they wanted to try and do something more scientific. It's reasonable. Uh, but the problem is that you people fall in love with the checklists. And the, wor- you know, the worst thing that's going on, of course, is childhood bipolar disorder, where three-year-old kids are getting labelled and medicated as bipolar because they have temper tantrums. And that looks like like an item on the bipolar checklist. So it's open to terrible abuse. I think it's fair to say that both you and I are members of the media. Um, uh, I maybe am a little bit more of a pseudo journalist than you are, but um, you know, we're, we're both, we're both in this world. And, and as I read, as I read that part of the book, what I was thinking about, in addition to this epidemic of uh, uh, or, or potential epidemic of overdiagnosis, was the relationship between this discipline of psychiatry and my own discipline of journalism, um, which is to say that there are there are elements of of journalism that are about narrative exclusively. Um, and, you know, like I think something, something really frivolous on This American Life might be a good example of that, something that is about an entertaining real-life story. Mm. There are elements of journalism, but that, that is one extreme, and most of them live in this liminal area that is between telling us a story because we like to hear stories and explaining to us something important. And very few of them are, you know, empirical studies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what, what does it come down? You know, how, so how do you regulate yourself? And the only way of doing it is to, is to try in an expanding and more stressful market to be a moral person. Yeah, so I love the fact that, for instance, the This American Life people who I work with quite a lot are very humanist. They always want to see the best in somebody. They're always looking for the for the moment of empathy that you can connect to, which is obviously a, a, a great impulse. But on the other end of the scale, what you have, what you're getting more and more and more is this kind of dis- yeah, kind of disgusting proclivity to yeah, tell stories that basically mock crazy people, and it's happening in mainstream television and. You know, magazines in America and Britain. You know, the biggest show in Britain at the moment is called, by far the biggest show is called um, reality show is called My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding, where every week they make fun of gypsies. I think you you guys are going to get it quite soon in America. Mm. It's basically let's mock 
gypsies for being vulgar. Uh, and it's getting six, seven, eight million viewers in Britain every week. Wow. Yeah. And it's a it's a ter- it's a corrosion of 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 morality. I've I've noticed it happening actually with things like The Apprentice. You know, series one of The Apprentice, I thought was a uh, certainly The British Apprentice was a very incisive look at capitalism. Series five of The Apprentice is just fragile narcissists falling apart in suits. <laughs> yes, yeah. it just it just shows you know how how terrible uh, factual programming is getting. Well, John, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the Sound of Young America. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. John Ronson's book, which is a real blast, uh, despite <laughs> despite moments of very dark tone in that conversation, is called The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White in Chicago. Special thanks to Paul Ruest, who engineered our interview with John Ronson at the Argo Studio in New York City. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. If you want to download this show or any of our past interviews, you can do it for free at MaximumFun.org or in iTunes. Just search for The Sound of Young America. While you're at MaximumFun.org, I encourage you to check out all of our other programs like the comedy advice show, My Brother, My Brother and Me, the comedy judge program, Judge John Hodgman, and my own comedy talk show, Jordan, Jesse, Go. They're all at MaximumFun.org and they're all absolutely free. That's about it for us this time. See you next week on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.